Good morning. Way back in January, on the 20th of January, we began a sermon series through the book of Revelation. And throughout the year, here and there, we've been going through the book, through most of the book. And this morning, we're picking back up in that series, and we hope to finish the book in the next few weeks. Now, the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And remember this, the Bible tells a story. I mean, it starts out in the beginning, which is um, a way of letting you know what's coming next, right? If I say to you, two guys walked into a bar, or if I said there was a Jew, a Catholic, and a Buddhist, you would automatically know what's coming next as a joke. When something starts out in the beginning, you know what's coming next is a story. The Bible is a story. It's the true story of the world. It's true because God wrote it. Now, I know that he used human authors, but at the end of the day, God inspired them. He fully inspired them, and he is the primary author. And because of that, because the Bible is a book God wrote, and by the way, that's That right there makes a difference between a Christian reading of the Bible and any other reading of the Bible. And and anybody who reads the Bible and doesn't read it as the book God wrote is not reading it Christianly. It's kind of a black or white binary thing. If you read it as a Christian, you read it as God is the author. If you struggle with that, if you can't recognize God as the author, then you're reading the Bible, but you're not reading it Christianly. God wrote the Bible. The Bible is the true story of the world. It's the story of history and who God is and who we are and what's happening in our world and where this whole thing is heading. And in our passage this morning, we see that all of history is moving toward three things. Judgment, heaven, and hell. And all three of these are hard for us to believe. All three of these don't sit well with our modern sensibilities. Let's take them each in turn. First, the whole world, the whole history of everything is moving toward judgment. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Everyone is judged, no matter your social or political status. Small and great, we're all judged in the same way, by the same standard, before the same divine judge. There's no room in this situation for bribery. This judge from whom earth and heaven flee, do you think you have something that he's intimidated by? No, that's the point, right? That, that earth and heaven flee from him. He cannot be overawed by anything you can bring to that moment. The clout of powerful people will be meaningless. And on top of that, not only will the great be judged, but also the small. No one will be too small, too insignificant for God to ignore Everyone will stand before the throne of God. All will be summoned. And notice in the middle of verse 12. And books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. That Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, before we get all caught up in the lake of fire and hell and all that, I promise I'll save the best for last. We'll get there, okay? But before we get mad about that and decide to write it all off over that, let's take first things first. This judgment that's going on here. Judgment is based on something. It's based on what's recorded in these books. Something about our lives has been caught in a permanent record that's capable of being consulted and there's two sets of books there's books and then there's a book of life does this mean there's actually a library in heaven with everything you've ever done physically written with physical ink in it no don't confuse the sign for the reality it means that your life matters and your actions matter. It means that human beings act. We do things and everything we do is either good or evil or some infinitely complex mix of good and evil. And at the end of our lives, our lives will be an open book. And we will be judged based on the totality of the life we've lived. And then there's this other book, the book of life. And again, does this mean there's some actual physical book with actual physical writing sitting in some giant Hogwarts library in the sky? No, don't confuse the symbol with reality. What it means is that we are known by God. God knows who has been loyal to Jesus. God knows who has resisted the seductions of the world and who gives their heart and their worship to King Jesus alone. And what if you've done that? What if you've given your heart and your worship to King Jesus? What if you've responded to his awesome majesty and his grace and kindness and his ocean depth of love has come into your life and you have drawn down on it and your life has been marked by it? Your deeds, your behavior Perfect or imperfect, it's been marked by this kind of tap of love that is coming into your life from God alone. What if you have given him your allegiance and your, your love? Well, this is chapter 21. We get this amazing picture of God, the creator of all things, who created us for happiness and for himself because he is the fountain of happiness. And listen again to what it says at the end of verse 6. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is the foundational truth that holds the delicious prospect that the human story is a love story destined for a glorious end. This is what holds it together, that it will surprise us beyond our wildest, best imaginations. That your deepest longings, your longing for happiness and satisfaction, God will fulfill it. Not some other longing, but your longings. That your story can end in total joy 
and real satisfaction. Not some wispy thing that bores you to tears. But take your happiest moment, your deepest joy, and don't move from it, but amp it up. What, what about verse 2? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This giant, huge, intoxicating story that begins in Genesis chapter 1 that tells the story of the world, it does not end with us escaping from the world, escaping from our bodies. It's about the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of the earth. As the Apostles' Creed puts it, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This world does not end in the story the Bible tells with the destruction of the world, but with the transformation of the world. The whole plot line of the Bible has been aiming at this, not at the elimination of earth for the sake of heaven, but the joining together of heaven and earth as one new creation. God's plan is much larger and much more comprehensive than saving human beings. God is saving and redeeming trees and pets. My pet doesn't need a lot of redemption. He's pretty close, but some of yours, your dogs, they got a lot of work God's going to do on them, right? It's all going to be redeemed. One of the greatest theologians of the church has this whole section on pets that animals will know their owners the way we know our most intimate lover and that they will be known by God. All of the earth redeemed. The trees, the valleys, government, art, all of it, every bit of it, caught up in God's love and healing and grace. The whole plot line of the Bible is moving toward God answering the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. That God's will would be done on earth, in earth, with earth, as it is in heaven. Heaven is not the promised land. The earth healed is the promised land. And then there's verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. I mean, can you imagine this earth with all of death wiped away from it? All of us know that there is a painful, sorrowful reality to this world. But that will pass away. Life, laughter, and pleasure will be the last word. Not death, crying, and pain. And to crown it all, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. When God is with us, when he lives with us, we will finally feel at home in this world. And we will see God's face. And his name will be on our foreheads. This is the greatest promise in the Bible. We forget it. But just imagine for a moment. A child who's gone through a terrible tragedy. How healing it is. To see his mother's loving face. Times a bazillion. 
In the words of John Wesley, there will be a deep and intimate and uninterrupted union with God. A constant communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. Now, don't worry. This will not be boring. Because God is an infinite God who has endless aspects of himself to reveal to us. God has enough joy and satisfaction to satisfy all that he has made. You see, the real challenge to us today is to believe that there is a God who is an eternal fountain of joy and happiness whose nature is to be ecstatically happy. Can we believe that the delights of love have no end? If such a God exists, then eternal happiness is not only possible, it is real. You see, in the new heavens and the new earth, time will not be measured by growing old. That's how we measure time now. Death is how we measure time now. But in the new heavens and the new earth, time will not be measured by losing vitality and losing zest for life. It will be measured by growing ever closer to God and sharing ever more deeply in his boundless joy and energy. To believe in God is to believe not only that love is stronger than death, Death, but joy is stronger than boredom. I suspect a lot of us are bored when we really think about heaven. That's a new thought. It came up after the Civil War in America. We couldn't find it in the annals of history until then, but because before then, most people's life was mostly work with some entertainment. But we live in a moment where entertainment is so frequent, we feel like the reality of joy is that it ultimately leads to boredom. I know for some of you thinking of this, this beautiful image of a new heavens and a new earth is too good to be true. Maybe you're finding your heart longing for this joy, but wondering if it's just a fantasy. Listen to the last half of verse 5. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. God himself, who has not spoken directly since the beginning of the book, says, I know you're going to have a hard time believing this. Write it down. It is true. He addresses us from the throne to assure us that perfect beauty and goodness will connect with truth. He will make all things new. And goodness and truth and beauty will never be broken apart again. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I think we moderns struggle with all three of these things. We cannot imagine judgment. We cannot believe in heaven and hell seems immoral. Notice how Revelation 21 verse 8, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. It's this beautiful, glorious thing. And then suddenly he starts talking about a lake of fire. The same thing happened back in chapter 20 verse 15. Right up until then he's talking about everybody who's going to be a part of 
um, their names are written in the book of life. And then in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is very hard for us modern folk to believe in God transforming a world by his love into a new creation and a healing of all things. It is hard for us to believe that in the midst of that is hell. Remember our gospel reading from this morning. John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying. It's a really important place in the Bible. A lot of people call John 17 the high priestly prayer. It's the longest prayer of Jesus is recorded in Scripture. And in John chapter 17, verse 24, he says to the Father, You loved me before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world. Before there were angels or any other created being, God was a father who had a son and the father and the son and the Holy Spirit existed before all worlds in a relationship of perfect love and endless delight in each other. Now, if that's true, then ultimate reality is love. Because God, the creator of all things, is love. If the basic fundamental reality is not the laws of physics, it's not the universe either burning up or thawing into a coal. If, if that is not ultimate reality, if the ultimate explanation of things is not physical processes, if the ultimate reality is eternal love, then how can there be hell? This is a, a question Christians cannot ignore. You can't ignore it because if you read the Bible as a Christian, you read the Bible as God, the one who wrote it, and then you get to the end of it, and there it is. And love wins. And with the triumph of love is hell. How can that be? Well, first of all, it is important to be clear that when we get here to the end of the Bible and we are looking at a lake of fire with people in it, it is important to be clear no one is in hell against his wishes. This is, a, this is absolutely critical to this, taking this seriously, the story of the Bible. No one's there against their wishes. People are there entirely because of their own wish, their own choice. In other words, everyone is hell. Everyone in hell is successfully rebelling. They are successful rebels to the end, and the doors of hell are not barred from the outside. They're locked from the inside. It's not that God won't let these people out of hell. These are people who refuse to come out of hell. They have chosen to shut God out of their lives, and that is why the doors of hell remain locked tight from the inside. Anyone who chooses not to love God and not to invite him into their life has chosen to exclude themselves from the joys of God. Love cannot be forced. We know this, right? God loves and desires our love in return. True love can be invited, it can be elicited, it can be won, but it cannot be coerced. This is just a thing we know. 
True love can't be programmed or coerced or simply demanded. It is because love is at the very heart of our freedom as creatures made in the image of God that some people choose not to love God. True love requires choice. Love demands freedom. It always has and it always will. And we are free. You are free. We are free to resist and reject and rebel against God's ways. And we can have all the hell we can stand. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Everyone in hell chooses it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No person who seriously and constantly desires joy will miss joy. That was kind of a philosophical way to answer the question. Let me come at it from another angle. Revelation chapter 1, if you look in your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, describes the new heavens and new earth. Then in verse 8, we get hell. And then in verse 9, we go back to the new heavens and the new earth. Now think about this for just a minute. In, in this glorious description of the new heavens and the new earth, physically, right in the middle of the description is a description of hell. You see that? One to seven describes the new heavens and new earth. Then you get a description of hell. Then you get nine through the rest of the end of the book, the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see how physically, right in the middle of God telling us about heaven, he talks about hell? I meant what, yes. Whatever I was supposed to mean is what I meant. I don't know what I said now. All right. Why is God telling us about hell in the middle of telling us about the new heavens and the new earth? Because that's where hell is. It's in the new heavens and new earth. Go back to chapter 14. Look at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's where hell is. It's right there in the presence of the Lamb. This is the key, I think, to us modern people who really do want to take love seriously and really do want to say, like Susanna said to me, the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. Like, this is God's word, right? If we really do want to take love seriously and we really do know that we cannot stand in judgment on the word of God. I think this is the key for us moderns to seeing how these things fit together. How hell and God's love are consistent. You see, at the end of the day, Psalm 139 tells us there is nowhere that you can flee 
from God's presence. The God of love is everywhere and we cannot exist a millisecond without his love, his grace, his power. In other words, even people who may be far from God in terms of a meaningful, loving relationship with God are still close to him in terms of proximity because God is everywhere. And there's coming a day when the love of God will cover the earth like waters cover the sea, where the knowledge and glory of God will cover the earth. So the people in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 are in the presence of the Lamb by virtue of the fact that they could not exist if they were not in his presence because it is he who gives them existence. And they might even be aware of that. However, and this is the key, they are utterly broken from him because they reject him. They're close in terms of something like proximity, but they are far apart in terms of love and intimacy. And you know what this is like because you lived in a house with a parent you didn't love. Or you raised a child who rejected you. You know what it's like to be locked into a house where you hate and despise the love that is given. That's hell, isn't it? It's miserable, isn't it? I mean, look at it this way. Imagine a son alienated from his father and his father deeply loves his son, but he hates his father and he resents the fact that he's dependent upon his father so he will not return his father's love. And imagine in this situation, the son has to live at home because I don't know, he's 13 or 15 or 18 or he's 22 and can't afford to move out. I don't know. Just for some reason, the son resents the father but has to live dependent on the father. The, the misery would be palpable what I'm saying is hell is not separation from God's love hell is is proximity to the God of love whom the wicked hate this is the reason hell is described as fire because in Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 the love of God is called fire. Revelation 1.14, it's the first description of Jesus, and it's Jesus a lover. And if you remember back in January when I preached on this passage, it's picking up the Song of Solomon where, where, the, where the beloved describes her lover, and when she gets to the eyes, she describes him. And when, when in Revelation, Jesus is described according to the erotic love poem of Song of Solomon, it says his eyes are flames of fire, and it's riffing off of Song of Solomon at the end. Set me as a seal upon your heart heart as a seal upon your arm for love is strong as death jealousy is fierce as the grave its flashes are the flashes of fire the very flame of the Lord the eyes of the Lord are the flame of his love and you know this you've looked in the face of someone who loves you and it leapt out at you like a we use that metaphor when we describe love still today so why is hell described as fire Because Jesus is the living love of the Father and the love that many waters cannot quench. He is the fire of the Lord. It is stronger than death. And yes, the ultimate reality is love. But how is that experienced for those who resent it and hate it? That's hell. And it is real. This is how there can be hell 
in the midst of love. It is because God is a passionate, amazing, loving God. And that love is experienced differently by those who love him than it is by those who resist him. Our freedom allows us to refuse his love. To go our own way. And if that is our choice, his glorious love will be experienced like a burning fire rather than the spring of the water of life that will quench our thirst. The Eastern Orthodox Church has been saying this for centuries. That there is essentially no difference between the fire of hell and the fire of love. There is no difference between the burning, searing fire of hell and the glory of God. Going to hell is the soul's resistance to the beauty of God's glory. It is refusal. It is your refusal to open yourself to the divine love. There are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. And that reality is there at the end. If you refuse to repent, and to receive and return the love of God. Your lot will be in the lake of fire. We can't pick and choose. It's either God's word. Or it's man's book. Hell is the empty shell. Of which heaven is the pulsating vibrant reality. Everyone is in hell is there because they refuse to embrace true repentance and do not have a heart that is open to the transforming love of God. And because at the end of all things, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the sea. And those who refuse to open their hearts to God will not to get, they will not get to live apart from his love. But that doesn't have to be the case. That's the whole point of the amazing, beautiful story. It really doesn't have to be the case. You can open your heart to God. Your children can. Your parents and your siblings can. Please open your heart to the one who alone can satisfy your heart's desire. Let's pray.